As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Thank you, Shanna. Uh, can I ask you please to make sure you've got a Bible open in front of you there at Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to spend a fair amount of time in that passage. Uh, and also to grab one of these handouts, uh, hopefully you can see it in front of you. You'll see inside I have a detailed outline of what I'm going to cover tonight. There are some blanks that you will need to fill in at one point, so make sure there's a pen handy. And you'll also notice at the very end that we're going to uh, finish just with a moment for you to be able to reflect on your own this week. Um, the other thing to notice is uh, make sure you can see one of these little memory verse cards that we've been going through each week. Uh, today's is actually quite long. I'll explain why later. But I thought I'd ask you how you're going with the memory verse challenge so far. Uh, I've been speaking with some of you, and I know that it's been both a challenge but also a great comfort and encouragement. Uh, you'll see on the inside of your handout the memory verses from the first two weeks of this series. So in fact, what I'm going to ask us to do is to say them together. If you can't remember them, they're printed right there. Um, we join me in saying the first one, Ephesians 1 verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then last week's from chapter 1 verse 17, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so you might know him better. Okay, terrific, well done. Well, um, those first two memory verses were chosen because they paint a magnificent picture of how God has been so generous to us and why we long to know him better. But in many ways, after chapter 1 and its grand soaring heights, this week we come crashing back down in chapter 2 as Paul gives a brutally honest assessment of what we are like. And you might say, this is where it gets personal. Uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is one of my favourite passages in the Bible uh, because it's short, it's to the point, and it speaks to every part of our lives. It speaks to our past, our present and our future. It speaks to our awful predicament before God and His amazing intervention, as well as His glorious plans for us, both in the here and now and in eternity. And I reckon that feels like a pretty good way for us to spend our Sunday evening together. So if you have a look on your outline, you'll see there are three points. Uh, dead in our sins, made alive in Christ, and on the right-hand side, both saved from and saved for. 
Uh, and as I said, there's a blank there for you to fill in along the way. And near the end, instead of getting you to, to discuss with the person next to you, as we've done the last couple of weeks tonight, I'm just going to pause at the end and give you a moment for quiet reflection. Otherwise, we'll just race on to the next thing tonight and in the week ahead. And it's good for us to have uh, that moment of silence. Well, let's start then at uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3.1, Dead in Our Sins. Pick it up with me in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, page 1665. Verse 1, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Now, Paul opens with three pretty confronting descriptions of our transgressions and sins. Uh, they're described in three different ways there in verse 2 and 3. He describes our transgressions and sins, verse 2, as following the ways of this world. Following the ways of this world. Uh, actually, his logic is pretty simple, I think. Our world has rejected God, so if we're just fitting in, following the ways of this world, inevitably we'll end up doing the same. His second description of what our transgressions or sins are like, uh, again, verse 2, following the ways of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, following the ways of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, uh, which is just a very roundabout way of saying the devil. Now, I want to acknowledge, of course, at this point, that even if we today are unconcerned about the devil's influence, or in fact, even his existence, do remember that the Ephesians, to whom Paul is writing, they were acutely aware of the supernatural. Remember, we heard a few weeks ago from Acts chapter 19 about how the early Christians in Ephesus burnt their magic scrolls worth nearly 50,000 days' wages. It's a reminder, sorcery in fact is a reminder of just how far they would go in Ephesus to improve their lot in life. And so I take it that if everyone else in Ephesus was doing it, it would have been hard for the new converts to stop following the ways of this world. That is, until they realised there was a better way to live, seeking every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms that's ours in Christ. So Paul describes our sins as following the ways of this world, uh, following the devil. The third description, uh, you'll see there, in verse 3, he calls gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. If those first two descriptions were external to us, the ways of the world, the rule of the kingdom of the air and how they influence us, this third description is very personal, it's internal cravings of our flesh, desires and thoughts, those are the things that drive our actions. Those are the reason why we keep doing them, despite our best efforts or intentions to stop. So Paul starts here by describing uh, our transgressions and sins, and it's pretty confronting what he has to say. The second thing that he goes on to do, do then is to outline two devastating consequences from our sin. Two devastating consequences from our sin. The first, what actually comes at the end of the section, uh, verse 3, like the rest, he says, we were deserving of wrath. 
we were deserving of wrath, uh, deserving of God's wrath because of our sins. Do you know, according to the Bible, sin is not just flippantly saying things like, oh, my mistake or my bad. Sin is what brings us under God's wrath. The reason for that is because sin, it's not just judicial, it's not just legal. Sin is not just breaking laws. Fundamentally and at heart, sin is relational. It's what happens when you offend a person, in this case, God. And so, sin is more than just an infringement notice or a code violation. Sin is really rejection and betrayal. And so, Paul says that our sin brings us, makes us deserving of God's wrath. But the other way in which he describes the devastating consequences of our sin, well, you saw it right back in verse 1. He uses a vividly confronting metaphor. He doesn't pull any punches. Verse 1, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Dead in our transgressions and sins. When Paul says we're dead, he's not saying that we were struggling with our sins. When he says that we're dead in our sins, he's not saying that we were burdened by them or weighed down. When he says that we're dead in our sins, he's not saying that we were constrained, disadvantaged or mildly impaired. He's not saying that we were a little bit sick or mildly unwell or even somewhat compromised. Rather, because of our sins, we're pronounced dead. Now, of course, the phrase dead in transgressions, uh, it probably means to be spiritually dead, uh, not physically dead. Uh, It's true. Uh, You and I have the appearance of being alive, and most of us look well enough, some more than others. But Paul's argument, I think, is that if we're cut off from God, God who is the source of life, the one who has incomparably great power to raise Jesus from the dead, as we saw last week in chapter 1, then it's only a matter of time. You might say we are as good as dead, or we are the living dead. Now, I often like to illustrate this point, dead in our transgressions, by saying... Dead in our sins means that we are more like a bouquet of flowers than a pot plant. We are more like a bouquet of flowers than a pot plant. Bouquet looks good, but you know it's running out of time. Or maybe, if you're not into floristry, think of a mobile phone and no charger. More bluntly, I think it's fair for us to say that the measure of our deadness the utter helplessness of our predicament left to ourselves, well, it's that the one thing dead people cannot do is self-administer CPR. So Paul has described what sin is. He's outlined the devastating consequences of our sin. And the third and final thing he does in this opening session, and uh, this is the blank for you to fill in on your handout, Paul says that this awful verdict applies to everyone. This awful verdict applies to everyone. Now, to use a buzzword or a catchphrase of our times, you would say Paul is extraordinarily inclusive. 
Because three times in this section, he applies this diagnosis to everyone. Verse 1, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. He's speaking to an entire church here, to everyone in Ephesus. Likewise, in verse 3, all of us also lived among them. And again, at the end of verse 3, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. There are no exceptions, no outliers, no escaping. All of us, Paul says, are dead in our sins. What that means, well, can I say, firstly, if you're here tonight as someone who's not a Christian, but you've come to church because you're trying to find out who Jesus is and what difference he he might make, uh, then once again, welcome, we're delighted that you are here. I think that what Ephesians 2 means is that if all of us are dead in our sins, then no one in this church can ever look down on you. And I want to apologise if anyone ever has. Because quite frankly, to add to the list of all their other sins, they can now add hypocrisy. Everyone is dead in their sins. And so if I can say something at this point to the members of this church, to the Christians here... Ephesians 2 means that the most inclusive community in the whole of society should be church. It should be us. Because we know that everyone is lost without Christ. So no sinner is any better or less bad than any other. Not when the benchmark or the comparison is God himself. Again, I often like to say... It really doesn't matter if you happen to be one step closer to God if all of us are light years away from him. Well, what do you think of Paul's verdict on humanity so far? Cheery stuff, huh? Actually, it's pretty bleak, isn't it? And it feels quite helpless. Uh, But thankfully... The passage goes on and there is hope and we will get there in a moment. But before we do, I hope you can understand why we spent so much time on the diagnosis. You see, Paul knows that we must be brought low before we can be lifted up. And if you just gloss over the problem, you'll only ever have a superficial solution that will never change the way that we live or make any real difference. Having done that, though, it's time to move from diagnosis to remedy. And the upside, of course, is having plumbed the depths of our sin, the soaring heights of God's grace will be even more stunning. So come with you then, point two on your handout, on the left-hand side, made alive in Christ. Made alive in Christ, verses 4 through 7. Pick it up with me again in Ephesians 2, verse 4. Verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Well, you remember I mentioned earlier... Dead people can't self-administer CPR. So that means if we're dead in our sins, we need someone external to us to intervene, to make us alive again. And hence, verses 4 and 5's wonderful declaration, it's God 
who has made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgression, it is by grace you have been saved. Now, the way that God makes us alive, the how, uh, by grace, well, that's actually going to be the subject of verses 8 through 10. So let's just hold that for a moment. For now, what stands out most, I think, in verses 4 through 7 is not the how, but the why. You see, Paul answers the really big question that lies behind all of this. Why would God intervene? Especially when our sins were a rejection and betrayal of him. Why would God make us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions? The answer that you would have noticed running through those four verses, it's actually expressed with four lovely turns of phrase, all of which keep repeating the same big idea. You notice it there, verse 4, because of his great love for us. Or again in verse 4, because he is rich in mercy. Or in verse 7, because of the incomparable riches of his grace. Again in verse 7, because of his kindness to us. I especially love the first reason that Paul gives. It's so direct, it's so to the point, it's so wonderfully reassuring. Verse 4, because of his great love for us. Uh, Quite literally, in the original, Paul says, because of his great love with which he loved us. Because of his great love with which he loved us. And in case you're wondering what that love might look like in practice, Paul goes on to give three illustrations about how God's love plays out in reality. About what he has done for us even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins. Those three illustrations, well, verse 5, he made us alive with Christ. Verse 6, he raised us up with Christ. Verse 6, he seated us in the heavenly realms with Christ. Made us alive with Christ, raised us up with Christ, seated us in the heavenly realms with Christ. Isn't that amazing? God doesn't just deal with the sin that causes our death, He's not just made us alive in Christ, he's gone even further. And he's raised us up with him and seated us in the heavenly realms with Christ, with the one whom he loves. Now, look, to make this point, uh, let me ask you a question. My question is, it's a pretty simple one, where are you seated? Where are you seated? At one level, the answer is pretty straightforward, right? You're seated at Trinity Church Adelaide, in the least comfortable pews of all time. Uh, That's because I discovered this week, I did some research, well, actually someone else did the research, and then they told me that these pews that you're sitting on, they were originally installed in 1879. Isn't that amazing? 1879. That's why they're heritage listed um, and why they're so uncomfortable. So the answer to the question of where are you seated at one level, well, it's here. But according to Ephesians 2... We are also seated in the heavenly realms with Christ at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Paul is saying that Christians actually have two locations simultaneously. One is here on earth with God's Spirit in us. And at exactly the same time, we are also seated in the heavenly realms with Christ at the right hand of the Father. And you know why that's so important? Why that's so wonderful? is because that location never changes. 
no matter what's going on down here, no matter where we are in God's world, is that not the best comfort and relief? What's more, if God has elevated us to such a high and exalted position, we can be pretty confident he must have even grander things still to come. Actually, there's a hint of that there in verse 7. In order, verse 7, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. The incomparable riches of his grace are still to come. I think it's a deliberate reference to verse 19 of chapter 1 where he, Paul talked about his incomparably great power that raised Jesus from the dead. Now, his incomparably great riches of his grace. That's what God has in store for us. Now, everyone loves a redemption story, right? Everyone loves a rags-to-riches story. And the story that Paul is telling in Ephesians 2, this is one of the greatest of all time. Why? Well, because this is everyone's story. This is true. Verses 1 through 3 started very badly for everyone, but because of the great love with which he loved us, this story can finish very well for everyone. And so, once again, I want to say, if you're here tonight as someone who's not a believer, who's trying to work out who this Jesus is, I want to ask you, how do you think your story is going to end? How can this become your glorious story? Uh, one of the easy steps, I think, is, as I referred to before, please consider joining us at our upcoming Explore course that you at least have a chance to consider just how incredible Christ is. Well, for now, let's come to the last part of the passage. And this is point three, both saved from and saved for, verses eight through ten. We're on the right-hand side of the handout. Uh, we've seen how we were dead in our sins, but we've been made alive in Christ. So point three, saved from and saved for. Pick it up with me in Ephesians 2, verse 8. Ephesians 2, verse 8. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, I said a little earlier that I'd return to this question of how God saves us. Um, verses 4 through 7 focused on why God saved us. And so here we are. Uh, Verses 8 through 10 give the, reason of, give the reason how God saves us. And, of course, at this point, um, this has brought us to today's memory verse, as you'll notice on those little cards in front of you there. Uh, the short answer is that we are saved by God's grace. We are saved by God's grace. And you see that in, the, in verse 8. It is by grace that you have been saved. In fact, it's the identical phrase that we used back in verse 5. You would have noticed that as well. It is by grace you have been saved. Let me make three brief comments, uh, each of which are listed there on your handout. By grace, through faith, not by works. Firstly, by grace. One last time, dead people can't self-resuscitate. That means we need someone else to make us alive. And because for those of us, for all of us, dead in our transgressions and sins, because... 
the one who makes us alive again is the very one we rejected and betrayed in the first place. This is the perfect definition of grace and mercy and love and kindness. The one we had offended is the one who brings us back. When I'm forced to admit how hard I find it to forgive those who have even slightly wronged me, I'm constantly amazed by how extraordinary God's grace must be. How are we saved? By grace, through faith. Through faith. Now, let me just be very clear here. The word faith, when you see it in the Bible, it simply means trust. Faith simply means trust. Uh, When we hear the word faith, I think often we associate that with believing in something. But trust, trust carries a sense of what you place in someone. In this case, saved by grace through faith means trusting that God is rich in mercy. That he has great love for us. That he has incomparable riches of grace expressed in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. We are saved by grace through faith, trusting in God's goodness to us. Now, one of the things I just want to try and unpick for a moment is you'll notice that there's a a funny little clause in the middle of verse 8. Have a look with me. Verse 8, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Here's the question. What is the this referring to in verse 8, do you think? It is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. I suppose that this could be referring to grace, or it could be referring to faith. I think Paul is actually referring to faith. Faith is a gift from God. Because I thought what I think Paul is doing is gently reminding us that Even our faith is God's gift and kindness. And that's the reason why some people seem to have more faith than others. But it doesn't actually matter. See, what matters is the magnitude of God's grace, not the strength or quality of our faith. What matters is the magnitude of God's grace, not the strength or quality of our faith. The reason I say that is because, well, if it was all about our faith, inevitably we would turn faith into something to take pride in. Or worse, we'd become jealous of others who seem to have a stronger faith. How absurd that would be. Let me give you an illustration to try and make the point that shows that actually grace is what saves us but our faith is the way in which we receive it. Here's the illustration. There's a picture on screen behind me. I spent a disproportionate amount of time this week on the internet looking at water pipes. Don't ask me why. It was for this sermon illustration, to be honest. You know a water pipe? There are ones with very wide diameter and there are water pipes with very small diameter. But in the end, all that matters is, is water coming through. So faith is like the pipe. Grace is what it is that God lavishes on us. And in the end, the way we are saved is by grace through faith. Okay, look at your handout again. How are we saved? By grace 
through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. Not by works, so that no one can boast. Verse 9. See, because we're saved by grace through faith, there is no boasting before others. I mean, why would you boast? We were all dead in our transgressions and sins. And likewise, because we were saved by grace through faith, there's no boasting before God. We were dead. So any good that we might have done, it doesn't really offset our sins that killed us. This is a really important point for us to note. It's critical for us to realise that when God evaluates our lives, what he looks for is purity, not just a net positive. When God evaluates our lives, he looks for purity, not just a net positive. You know, a net positive, that sense of, was there sufficient good to outweigh the bad we have might done? Sin is not weighed on a set of scales, although I think that's how most of us imagine it is. You know, you put all your good on one side and you put all your failings and sins on the other and what you just hope for is that you have more good than failings and therefore God will be pleased with you. That's not how God looks at sin. Sin is not to be loaded up onto a set of scales. Sin, Sin is written on a whiteboard. Permanent marker. It doesn't matter what other good deeds might be listed there unless those sins are erased, they're still counted against us. But the wonderful news of Ephesians 2 we are saved by God's grace, by the one whom we had betrayed and rejected. He is the one who forgives. Now, this is what leads to the great Reformation slogan of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and because it's by grace alone, through faith alone, it must be to the glory of God alone. Of course, the problem for us is that we're inherently proud people, so it is very easy to drift away from being saved by grace through faith. It's for that reason that this week's recommended reading, um, as you know, each week I try and recommend an extra resource because there's only so much we cover on a Sunday. You'll see a reference to it there. It's this great book called Nothing in My Hand I Bring, Understanding the Differences Between Roman Catholic and Protestant Beliefs. Now, the reason I'm recommending this book is by a fellow called Ray Galeer, he's a minister in Sydney. Um, it's not because I'm having a go at Roman Catholics by any stretch of the imagination, But it's because the Roman Catholic Church explicitly teaches that we are justified by our works. And I hope you can see from Ephesians 2, that cannot be further from the truth of the gospel. So perhaps you might like to pick that up in this week ahead. Uh, Well, when I was a new Christian, I decided that that it would be good for me to memorise Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9. Uh, I was encouraged to do that, of course, um, because it was well, both terribly confronting to my pride and wonderfully comforting in my guilt and shame. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, It is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. 
it perfectly maps the trajectory that we've been following in the whole of Ephesians 2, from being humbled in verses 1 through 3 to being reassured in verses 4 through 7. And so I duly memorized Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, and it was only years later that someone pointed out to me that there was a verse 10 as well, which quite frankly is even better. See, look at verse 10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Paul is saying that God doesn't just save us from our sins, he also saves us for service. To serve him right here, right now, to do what Paul calls the good works he has prepared in advance for us to do. And you realise how significant that is. Uh, we saw a little earlier, he has seated us in the heavenly realms with Christ so he might show us the incomparable riches of his grace in the coming age. But verse 10 says he also has great things in store for us to do today and tomorrow and every day until we see him face to face. God has prepared good works in advance for us to do. How wonderful that is. Now, one final illustration to try and describe this in a way that hopefully is memorable. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, my family and I were very fortunate to go and uh, to be in Thailand and to do one of these cooking schools. Now, there's a picture on screen behind me. Uh, you'll see our kids and my parents. Um, I learned two things on the day in which we went to this Thai cooking school. Uh, the first thing I learned is that if a Thai person asks, would you like a little bit of chilli, say no. Uh, man, that was hot. But actually, uh, on the next screen, thanks, Brianna, the much more important thing I learned was that if all the preparation has done for you in advance, you just get to enjoy the doing of the deed so much more. Can you see why I picked such a long memory verse for you this week? Chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 and 10. It's to remind us of what God has in store for us, not just in eternity, but right here, right now, because he saves us from our sins, but he also saves us for service. Or to put it slightly differently, in Ephesians 2, Paul is saying we depend on God's grace, both for our salvation and to show us our purpose in life. In fact, did you notice the lovely way in which we're described in verse 10? We are God's handiwork. Doesn't that make you grow a foot taller and stand a little straighter? Now, if you're wondering what all those good, good works are that God has prepared in advance for us to do, well, chapters 4 through 6 will explain them more fully. Um, so, you know, make sure you stay with us on the journey. Uh, but actually, in a moment, what we're going to do in communion is be reminded once again, both of what God has done for us in Christ and what he will still do for us in Christ in the coming ages, so we might cling to him each day. Uh, well, as I said at the start, I'm going to finish in just a moment. You'll see on the bottom right-hand side a little box. Perhaps you might like to jot down some notes to give you a moment for quiet reflection, what I've learned and my response. Let me make a few suggestions if this helps uh, guide you in your quiet reflection. Here are some responses, perhaps, because we're saved by grace. Firstly, because we're saved by grace, there's no place for judgmentalism. So perhaps the question you might reflect on is, 
Whom do you look down on? Because we're saved by grace, there is, well, there is a need for humble confession. And so perhaps the question is, what do you boast in? Because we're saved by grace, we have the joy of thankful praise. I wonder, what do you take delight in? One of the challenges for long-term believers is that saved by grace through faith, not by works, it just sort of runs off our tongues pretty quickly. And we can forget how extraordinary and life-changing those words are. Saved by grace through faith. It means that there's no need to cover up our failures, you know, because we're embarrassed by them. There's no need to try to atone for our sins. I mean, we can't anyway. We're dead in them. It means there is... It means that we're not crushed by the sins that we continue to commit, even after turning to Christ. Because they don't kill us all over again but they are not what God has saved us for. And so perhaps the final response might be, because of grace, we have the thrill of eager anticipation. What are those good works which God has prepared in advance for you to do? About how you spend your time or your money, how you relate to others, whether near or far, what you live for or aspire to, or dream about each day until we are with Christ and we are like Christ, which is better by far.